Well, Happy New Year, Beards and Bible listeners. We are super excited to open up our inbox today and do our very best to answer some very interesting questions that were all sent in by you as the listener. We've got questions today about being a Christian in the military, disagreements between Calvinists and Arminians, the differences between Catholics, Protestants, and the Orthodox Church, a question about singing worship songs connected with NAR churches, and if the Bible actually talks about unicorns. So buckle up, let's take a deep dive together into these questions. Welcome everybody to the Beards and Bible Podcast, podcast where we talk about beards and Bible and stuff. My name's Josh, and I'm joined tonight by my buddy Cape. Cape, how you doing, man? Mm. Doing great. Doing great. It feels like it's been a long time. I guess because the holidays. It's been a while since Gabe Ooh. and I have said on this podcast. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it has. Is that, st- is that a stained reference? That is a stained reference. Oh, yes. I feel like my. <laughs> my soul is now stained yes it's forever stained yeah stained never Ugh. spelled their band name with an e it was just s-t-a-i-n-d stained like limp limp biscuit but b-i-z or limp k-i-t biscuit limp biscuit biscuit yeah yeah man early 2000s what a, what a time to be alive my goodness yeah yeah. You were doing crazy things like intentionally spelling words wrong. <laughs> mm, yeah. And Jinkos. Yeah. Oh, wow. man. Well, Happy New Year to you. It's, I hadn't talked to you since last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot going on. Okay, rip the band-aid off fast. I have an announcement. Stacy and I are pregnant. It's going to be a boy. We're having our fourth boy. Oh. There it is. My word. I already knew that, but I'm yeah. back shocked and surprised for the sake of there it is. the podcast. That is so awesome, man. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. She's about, uh, I don't know how pregnant she is, but <laughs> she's pregnant. <laughs> she probably she's knows. Due, the, baby is, <laughs> the baby is due in June, mm-hmm. and it is going to be a boy. Now, so. you guys were talking to us in October when we hung out, and the two of you were saying you just felt like you needed to go try try for one more. Mm-hmm. And I think you guys had said that possibly you were hoping for a girl. Is that right? Or did I imagine that? Yeah. yeah I mean, I was hoping for a girl, but I don't yeah. want my future son that's yet to be born to like listen to this podcast episode <laughs> and be like, oh man. But I mean, In, let's just be honest. I was really hoping for a girl. Yeah. Well, we were convinced that Judah was a girl. We actually thought his name was Abigail Hope. And, uh, or not Abigail Hope, Abigail Faith. We, we had a name picked out. Jenny was like, I just have this feeling. It's a girl. It's a girl. It's a girl. And we went to the ultrasound room and they're like, you see that thing there? That's a boy. And Jenny sat mm. up and said, what? Check again. And they checked again. And yeah, it's, he's, he's the most like, he's, he's all boy. Like there's no, <laughs> but we can't imagine what life would be like with him. So hmm. yeah. 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 Um, 
I'm trying to think. We have a Noah, Elijah, Micah, and we need another name that ends in a uh. Mm-hmm. So mm. if you guys have any, those listening have any name suggestions for a boy that ends with this, the what about Ezra? sound? Ezra. Ezra. Hmm. Yeah, you stick with the, the you know, minor Ezra. prophets, Old Testament. Yeah. But then like, like if, if one of your other sons thought that they were maybe superior to him, would they be like, I'm better than Ezra? Get it? Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the yeah. It's funny, like I knew you were gonna ask, like, what's new with you, man? What's been going on? I knew you were gonna ask at the beginning of this episode, and I was mm-hmm. gonna say, Oh, I guess I could say I bought a motorcycle, I bought a cool old motorcycle. Oh, you did do that. You and then like yeah. yeah, and then like ten minutes later it occurred to me, I was like, Oh wait, yeah, you know what? I guess I should instead of that say that we're pregnant, because we are pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> I was like <laughs> I was thinking, wow, that's a where are my priorities here? Yeah. So hmm. Wow. Anyways. Well, both of anything them are equally cool. Uh, anything new with us? They Let's are. see. Um, man, we had a really, really awesome holiday season. Really, really full. Really uh, crazy busy. But nothing nothing out of the ordinary. No, I mean, just kind of plugging away, getting back to a, a new year with church stuff and family stuff. And yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Have you made any resolutions? For 2024? So, you remember last episode I was talking to you about Aiden doing the Karate for Christ thing? Yeah, yeah. So Kung Fu for Christ. Kung yeah. Fu for Christ. <laughs> Jiu-Jitsu with Jesus. Uh, so, <laughs> I went to a class with him. And so, I did Taekwondo. It was more like Americanized Karate, Taekwondo. Um, it, was, it was a... Uh, guy named Ben Kiker from North Georgia United Karate Studios. I, I, I did that for about four or five years and I almost got my black belt and I just stopped when I was a senior in high school because I was doing so much stuff with cello and music. I didn't really have time to do both. Mm. And I really hadn't done anything since like my senior year of high school. So that's coming up on 21 years ago. And um, so and you dusted crazy? off the old gi. Well, it's funny, like Aiden is doing it and he's like, dad, there's some other dads there. Will you go with me? And so I went and all this stuff that I apparently hadn't used in like 21 years, I still remembered it. Like I still remember some of the katas hmm. and some of the punches and blocks and kicks and stuff. And hmm. and so um, I don't know if it's like a resolution, but I'm going to give it a try to kind of like maybe get my, my black belt in a different form of martial arts. This would be Wataru karate instead of Taekwondo and Americanized mm. karate. So I don't know. I don't really I have time to do I it. I just picture, but... yeah, I picture you in the locker room, like tying that gi around your waist for like the first time <laughs> in 20 years. And like back in black, ACDC comes on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you just walk out there and just start kicking little kids just, in the stomach. Just, oh yeah, just obliterate them. There's the uh, Jesus with his black belt gi on. I just punch right through it. You know the cardboard <laughs> cutout of Jesus. That's that's yeah. not true. There's no cardboard cutout of Jesus in a black belt. Um, oh, yeah, but that's uh, cool. yeah. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. I'm I'm really happy that Aiden's doing it. He's he's able to do it twice a week. I'm not able to do it twice a week just because of work stuff. But I should be able to at least once a week on most weeks when I don't have other prior commitments, but we'll see what happens. I don't know. Yeah. So 
Yeah, I could could have uh, two registered weapons by the end of this year. This guy and mm-hmm. this guy. <laughs> you hear that, everybody? The Brooker home is one you don't want to mess with. You don't want to mess with you it. You don't want to break oh. into that home. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I got two two things for you: justice and mercy. And if you're listening, those are my fists. Mm. That's stupid. Mm. Well, speaking of defense and, and mm. um, defending things and uh, yeah. defending our nation. Ooh, you're jumping have, right into the first have, question, huh? That was a horrible, horrible second. <laughs> you're like, hey, let's get it's, this rolling. I don't want to be here all night. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, um, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of give us a uh, what tonight's episode's about, and then we'll jump in. Mm. So okay. you guys have sent questions in throughout the year. Some of you sent questions in in response to us asking for questions at the end of the year. And so thank you for your questions. We have taken um, some of them tonight, and Gabe is doing three questions, and I'm doing three questions, and so we're going to get through as many of these as we can. And uh, yeah. Gabe's going to start us off because Gabe was asked a question about the military and Gabe, you served in the military. So I felt like it was only appropriate for you to attempt to answer this question. So will you Mm. talk to people about your military service and then, and then answer the questions? Yeah. I mean, I was just in the the Florida national guard, but it wasn't like I was out there hunting down Osama bin Laden with seal team six or anything. I thought that was you. Sorry. Uh, Never mind. Yeah. I'll answer question um, one. <laughs> but I no, no, I, I do I am, you know, I am friends with a lot of other believers who are either active duty. My stepbrother is active duty military, he's active duty army right now. Hmm. Um works in aviation. Um and I'm friends with many other active duty or veteran um believers. Um and we've had these conversations many times, like, you know, would you encourage your your kid to uh to enlist but you want me to read the question that we yeah, got go ahead yeah okay it says how can members of our military keep the faith and persevere through what has become in my opinion one of the most ungodly cultures in america so let's just say there let's just pause there i guess and say yeah i think if you i think that's accurate if you took a survey of kind of the culture within certain branches of, of the u.s military that they're, um, I, w- I would say, there's pretty ungodly um, cultures. It's obviously there. That's there's exceptions to that, but um, yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate statement. Um, I believe there was a time when military members and the establishment as a whole wanted to persevere. I'm sorry, preserve godly values. However, that view is no longer held. During the First World War, and second, I believe if you weren't a Christian. Uh, U.S. war involvement almost spot you back out into society as a God-fearing man. Almost. Or must be spit you back yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As an example, Louis uh, Louis Zamperini uh, from that's the movie Unbroken. Yeah, and Desmond Doss, who I'm not. That's Desmond a Hacksaw Ridge guy. He oh, was yeah, a yeah, conscientious yeah, objector. Remember, we ran a marathon in his honor. Yeah, yeah. So I guess to distill this question down, how can members of our military keep the faith and persevere? Uh, through hmm. what has become, in my opinion, most okay. That's a great question. Yeah, that's really, yeah. really tough. Um, <clears throat> I think the number one thing is band together with other believers who are an active duty military, and um, and and promote, uh, facilitate, attend uh, 
local studies or or small groups with those members um, that you serve with. Uh, so, for instance, um, Chris, my stepbrother, who listens to the podcast. Hey, Chris. <laughs> hey, Chris. <laughs> Leg day tomorrow in the gym. Uh, <laughs> anyways, he he attends a small group that is led by a fellow serviceman who um, is a pilot, and they grapple with this question all the time together. So I think just – and they're both kind of like riding it out till retirement um, right now. But, yeah, it's like finding other believers in, in the service who – can help hold you accountable. That's a big thing. Um, because when you're immersed in a culture, that culture is going to inevitably influence you unless you can find kind of breakaway people who are, who are going to, um, help pull you back into a more righteous, um, direction. But then also, I know it's hard for members of active duty military to feel, um, able to be plugged into a local church or congregation, but that's still really important. Um, even if you're just spending two years there, um, get into a local church and be fed, be, be nourished with the word of God, serve at that church, um, help people fill needs of people in that church. Um, and just get to know people. I know it's going to, it's two years is going to fly by or however long you're there is going to fly by and you're going to feel like you're going to have to say goodbye to all those people, but, um, stay engaged in that at least. And, um, that's, that's what I, you know, my my best recommendation right now is just um just be around other believers as much as 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 best you can. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Man. That's great. Yeah, I was thinking about when we got this question in, my brother in law, he is a pilot in the Air Force and he and my sister in law, uh, they've been in for ten years. So this mm-hmm. is he's stationed in North Carolina and he gets out in April. But they'd be the first to tell you that it has, it's been a real challenge to try to form community mm-hmm. on bases that they've been stationed because it's like a revolving door. You know, mm-hmm. um, people come in, people come out. And a lot of these um, towns where there's a military base, a lot of the churches kind of tend to be that way too because there's so many servicemen and servicewomen that yeah. are there. Um, so, yeah, that community aspect can be really, really challenging. But I agree with you. That's That has to be the most mm. important thing, um, in that too. And yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think there's a, a, probably a bigger topic that maybe one of these days we can unravel. Like at what point would your Christian faith prohibit you from taking part in an unjust war or taking part in a military yeah. that you feel like had gone corrupt? Yeah, or you could say taking, you know, making an oath for that that those armed services. At what mm-hmm. point is it compromising your faith too much? Yeah, or right. at what point can you not put the uniform on any longer? Right, right, right. Um, yeah, that'd be a really good discussion to have with um, <clears throat> some some veterans that I'm friends with. Have them on as guests. And, oh, I love that. Yeah, and yeah, just have them really talk through some some finer points of that from a, from their perspective. Um, yeah. But yeah, you. I mean, in in any scenario and in any culture, any place that you find yourself, you're either an influencer or you're being influenced. Yeah, and that's an important principle to understand. Um, you know, I work in the construction industry right now, and you know, it's it's probably uh, on par to some extent with the culture of the military. Yeah, but when you walk into that environment and you know. If you remember this principle, I'm either going to be influenced 
or I'm going to be an influencer, even if it's just one person or two people, the people that work right within my immediate sphere of influence, um, I can change the dynamic. I can change the temperature and the, the, you know, the, the culture of that, that sphere to a certain extent. Um, once you, once you're aware of that and you just have the confidence, uh, have the boldness and, and you can really do it. Uh, you know, I've experienced it myself. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. And it's interesting, even the, the examples, this, uh, person listed in their question, uh, the guy from unbroken Louis Zim, is it Zamperini? Zamperini? Yeah, Zamperini. Yeah. And Desmond Doss. Um, at least Desmond Doss. I'm not as familiar with the uh, the Unbroken story, but Desmond Doss, man, he he experienced a tremendous amount of persecution for standing up for what he felt was right and what was related to his Christian faith. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. He wanted to serve in the military, but he was a um, Seventh-day Adventist, so he didn't feel like it was right for him to uh, bear arms. So he just wanted to be a combat medic. And I mean, it was a big deal that he had to suffer, but at the end of the day, he won the respect of a lot of people. Um, so, you know, part of being a Christian might be that you're standing alone for your faith in an environment that may not necessarily agree with everything that you believe, but your faith mm-hmm. is tested by whether or not you're willing to stand, even if it's just you standing alone, you know, so well great question thank you to whoever sent that one in uh we want to move on to number two let's do it okay this is a two-part question for you guys do you feel the debate between calvinism and arminianism is strictly collegial or is it salvific in nature do you feel the debate between Protestant and Catholic slash Orthodox is the same nature? Hmm. So collegial wow. would, yeah, that's a big question. Collegial is basically like between colleagues. Like it's, Hey, we're brothers in Christ we're sisters in Christ. We disagree. Um, is it, is it that, is it like, these are minors, not majors, or is it like, man, you're not a Christian if you don't believe one of these. Um, hmm. Yes, that's a big question. Uh, so if you remember, we did uh, two whole episodes on Calvinism and Arminianism. Um, basically, these are systems of theology that attempt to explain the relationship between um, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility when it comes to this thing called salvation. And so if you remember, there's there's five main points of disagreement between these two systems when it comes to exactly how salvation works, Calvinism says that humanity is totally depraved. And so humanity is not able in their self to respond to God because they're like absolutely totally depraved. Arminianism says, yes, man is depraved, but they're still capable of choosing to respond to God. Calvinism says God chooses to save some and it's unconditional in his election it's just according to his own good pleasure. We don't really know his reasons. He has reasons. We just don't know them. And Arminianism says, no, God chooses on the basis of foreknowledge. So he foresees those who would choose him back. And so on the basis of foreseen faith, he chooses. Um, Calvinism says God sent Christ only to die for the elect. Arminianism says Christ died for all. 
Calvinism teaches something called irresistible grace. Basically, if you're chosen, you don't have a choice. Basically, you if it's decreed by God that you're saved, you're saved. Uh, Arminianism says no human beings have free will. They can refuse and reject the grace of God. And Calvinism says the elect can never lose their salvation. That's called the perseverance of saints or eternal security. And Arminianism says there is security in God's grace. However, that is in relation to continued faithfulness. So a human being can still defiantly reject God. So it's conditional security. Does that make sense so far? Is that ringing bells from back in our episode? Mm -hmm. Did I miss anything or is that kind of a good summary? No, I think it's a good summary. Okay. So Gabe, what would you say? Is that collegial disagreement or is that (laughs) heaven or hell salvific? No, that's not, that's not salvific. That's just a, a, um, an attempt at understanding the nature of God, what we would call like a theological framework. Yeah. Um, but no, that would not be salvific. Now there probably are people that would claim that that's a salvific issue. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm exactly where I land. I think there's a lot of very loud, um, immature, and I would say probably very insecure internet wannabe theologians who just like to argue and hear themselves talk <laughs> on both sides of us, this issue. Us included. Us included, yeah. Uh, well, ouch, that hurts. Um, yeah. So I think those people who are Calvinist in that camp and, and like the, mm-hmm. the you know, cage stage, really angry internet theologian Calvinist would say that every Arminian is a humanist. They believe in workspace salvation. They're Pelagians, mm-hmm. right? And those who are like that, when I say like that, they're immature, they're brash, they're immature, insecure. They would say all Calvinists are fatalists. So Calvinists mm-hmm. say choices don't matter. You should never pray. You should never evangelize. And, and like, this is not true. That's just a very cartoonish descriptor of the other side. Um, yeah. I, I think biblically responsible and biblically literate Calvinists and Arminians both both would agree on all of the Christian foundations of what the gospel actually is. And it is that salvation is a gift from God by the grace of God through faith in Jesus who was crucified, buried, and resurrected from the dead according to the scriptures. And salvation is only found through the name of Jesus. So hmm. I think if two people can agree on that, then the specifics of what actually happens when someone places their faith in Christ, whether that's God choosing them or them choosing God, I think that's a secondary issue. And I think we can talk about it. We can have lively debates about it, but I don't think that should divide or cause people to mudsling or feel spiritually or theologically superior. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you're in agreement with that? Yeah, I am. Okay. So (laughs) this is the the most complicated of the two-part question. Do you feel the debate between Protestant and Catholic slash Orthodox is of the same nature? Mm. Hmm. So if I could take a stab at it, I think it's important, number one, to differentiate between Catholicism and Catholics um, Mm -hmm. because I don't – I think Catholicism as a system – as a as a as a um, organization, Roman Catholicism, I believe falls outside of the scope of normative biblical Christianity. 
Hmm. Um, when you look at the authority of the Pope, um, the canon of scripture, you look at their sacred traditions, some of them, which are a direct violation to scripture. You look at um, the view on Mary. I mean, we could spend an entire episode just talking about this. If you look at sure. um, idolatrous practices within uh, Catholicism, you know, praying through Mary, praying to saints. When you look at the, the idea of the priesthood within Catholicism, which is unbiblical in and of itself, and the, the priesthood only being able to, uh, being the only ones who can um, administer what they call the, the seven sacraments, the baptism, mm-hmm. confirmation, confession, holy communion, marriage, the holy orders, and anointing of the sick. Um, when you look at the idea of purgatory, and then when you look at just the idea of holy communion uh, or the Eucharist, and the Holy Sacrament, you know, the idea of transubstantiation, I can't say that word, yeah, yeah, yeah. transubstantiation. It literally becomes the um, body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Yeah. yeah. I think it's just a lot of overwhelming evidence that kind of piles up. For me, um, I have to put the, the system that is Roman Catholicism outside the framework of biblical Christianity. Hmm. Now, the, I believe that there are Catholics who are born-again believers. Sure. Um, yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, absolutely. But I believe that there are Catholics who are still lost and are not born sure, again. Sure. So, but I can't paint every Catholic with that broad of a brush. No, so I think that that's that's, a, that's my stab at it. Yeah, no, that's a very very fair stance. I mean, I, I I would say that that's that's tricky because you're not saved by being Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, Baptist. Mm-hmm. Like an individual must place faith in Christ alone, and it's God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone that saves somebody. So there's, there's likely no denomination in the Christian faith where every person in that denomination has truly trusted in Christ as savior. So there's no doubt in my mind, there are Catholics who are truly Christian, but not every Catholic is truly Christian, just like they're Baptists who are truly Christian, but not every Baptist is truly Christian. Right. Um, Yeah. hundred percent. So, and here's, here's maybe, well, I'm, I agree with you, but I'm a little bit hesitant. I'll kind of share kind of where I'm at. So Catholics and Orthodox both affirm the Trinity. They both say the Bible is the word of God. They both say Jesus is the son of God. There would be many major biblical doctrines that we would go through, like the Apostles' Creed, and we would say, yes, 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 right? So where things would start to get tricky and a little hairy, and we'd go, yeah, I don't, I don't think we're on the same page is when we start talking about how is someone made right with God? Mm -hmm. So most Calvinists and Arminians would say salvation is a gift from God by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. And Catholics would say, yes, but how do you receive that grace? Protestants would say faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone. Mm -hmm. Right. And Catholics would say, yes, but the means of grace would be you receive Christ as Savior by faith, but then you were baptized through the Trinitarian formula that the priest must do for you. Then you must observe the Catholic sacraments. And then if you die without any unconfessed mortal sins, then you're not saved. And so it is very much a pretty massive disagreement on what does it mean to receive Christ and what does it mean to like, what are the means of grace by which 
we exercise our faith. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, and here's where it gets even more complicated. Not all Catholics who hold to the Roman Catholic faith and tradition would hold to the Roman Catholic understanding of salvation. Mm. So there are Catholics who would agree with most Protestants, man, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. But they would still observe the sacraments and see them as kind of an aspect of um, rich history and heritage and spiritual growth and intimacy with God. And and they wouldn't see it as an attempt to try to earn salvation. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I would say disagreements between Catholics and Protestants are probably much larger than disagreements between Calvinists and Arminians because we're not disagreeing with what the gospel is when we're, you know, debating between Calvinists and Arminians. We both believe what the gospel is. We're just kind of disagreeing what happens when somebody puts their faith in salvation. And the Catholic and Protestant would be, we're, we're kind of disagreeing on like, how does someone respond to the gospel and what actually is the gospel? You think that's fair? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the lines are a little bit uh, starker, contrasting than than yeah, yeah, between Calvin and Arminians versus Catholicism and Protestant. It's, it, there's a little bit a wider a wider breach there between the two. Yeah. What about Orthodoxy, like Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox? Do you know enough about that? To be honest, I don't think no, I do. I'm, I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm not gonna say because no, I need to. I need to learn more about them before I can take a really yeah. dogmatic stance on it. I guess. Yeah, I, I think. Uh, I, I don't know if I would be the one to really answer on differences between Protestant and Orthodox. But what I do know mm-hmm. about the Orthodox tradition is, um, in a lot of ways, it's pretty similar to Catholicism in the sense of how means of grace are received. Um, Mm. so again, are there people who are Christian that are Orthodox? Of course, if they have put their faith in Christ alone, um, and they understand that salvation is by grace alone, of course. Right. But just because there are Christians within a certain denomination does not mean that the things that are taught are necessarily true. Like the infallibility of the Pope, not true. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not true. Right. The perpetual yeah. virginity of Mary. Not true. Right. I mean, it's just, it's not true. Um, so yeah. And if you're, Hey, if you're Catholic or Orthodox, send us an email. I would love to have a conversation. We could be way misrepresenting you and mischaracterizing you, but we'd love to have a conversation about it. So that's mm-hmm. all I have to say about that. <laughs> Well, we want to go into the next question. Yeah, do it. All right. Number three, Ark of the Covenant was veiled. The Ark of the Covenant was veiled and only approachable once per year by the high priest. Given that, how did the Ark move when the tabernacle moved? Who went in to carry it out? Presumably for people but how could they enter the Holy of Holies to schlep it out? Schlep. It's a good very word. good question. Schlep it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that is true. Um, the Ark of the Covenant was veiled. And, um, you know, in like 
Leviticus chapter 16, it specifies that only the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, could enter one day of the year, the holiest day of the year, on Yom Kippur, and he would make atonement for the people of Israel. And uh, he, first of all, had to make atonement for himself through these different rituals and everything before entering into the Holy of Holies to purify himself of sin. And uh, it was kind of risky business. So yeah, that's true. Only one person, the holiest person in all of Israel, on the holiest day of the year, could enter the holiest place on earth. So how could these people... And it says in Numbers 4, you know, that um, the sons of Kohath from among the sons of uh, Levi, that they were to... um, They had the the service of carrying out the holy things out of the tabernacle. So we got to kind of back up and explain, first of all... um, you know, when the Israelites came out of Egypt and they were given the instructions on Mount Sinai and how to erect and build this tabernacle, the tabernacle is called um, in Hebrew the Mishkan, which is the literally means the place of the of the Shekan, the place of the dwelling. And God's presence was made known to the people of Israel through a, a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud, or both, depending on the time of day, and it guided them around in the wilderness. And whenever they would erect the tabernacle, that pillar, what we would call the Shekinah in Hebrew, which is the, the dwelling presence of God, the the visible presence of God, it would rest above the Shekinah. So the Shekinah would rest above the Shekinah, the, the dwelling place. And it would fill the Holy of Holies. And that was kind of like a signal that that was, you know, the resting place for for that time period for the tabernacle and the people of Israel. They had about 40 different uh, camps that they, throughout the 40 years of wandering the wilderness, where they would pick up, they would move, they would settle, they'd pick up, they'd move, they'd settle. So that, that Shekinah, the visible presence of God, would move with them. Um, it would actually lead them. So it's presumed, to try to answer this question, it's presumed that when the Shekinah would begin to move, it that the Shekinah, the presence of God, would leave the Holy of Holies and begin to move, and the people would know that's the signal to break down camp, hmm. and they would follow the Shekinah. So therefore enabling the sons of Kohath to enter the Holy of Holies because it was now devoid of the Shekinah, the presence of God. Interesting. And they could then enter in and come in contact with the Ark of the Covenant through these four poles, and they would carry them on their shoulders. Hmm. But before they did that, even they put a cover of goatskin over the top of the of the um, of the Ark of the Covenant. The in Hebrew, it's the the Aron Habrit, the Ark of of the um, of the Covenant, hmm. in which were the tablets of the Covenant. You know, and written on those tablets were the Ten Commandments. So that was just a the Ark of the Covenant was just like a resting place for the Shekinah, the dwelling presence of God. When that Shekinah was present, only the holiest person on the holiest day of the year could enter into that presence, and he had to be he had to be purified of of sin himself before doing so, because you could you know that that presence could not come in contact with with sin. Um, there's an interesting verse. Uh, I always people ask me questions about the Ark of the Covenant. Um, periodically, and I like to point them. You know, people speculate about where it is and all this stuff. 
Um, but it's interesting. There's a prophetic verse in the book of Jeremiah, chapter three and verse 16. And it, God says, when your land is once filled with your people again, says the Lord, you will no longer wish for the good days when you possessed the ark of the Lord's covenant. You will not miss those days or even remember them, and there will be no need to rebuild the ark. I think that's interesting because sometimes we geek out about and speculate and spend an inordinate amount of time studying or watching videos about where the ark of the covenant is. But God says, God says in His Word, basically, when when I am restoring all things to the way I want them, you will not even think about the Ark of the Covenant. It's like my presence will be with you again. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's super cool. That's a very good question. Yeah, I was thinking about, I taught in, I've been teaching through First Samuel this fall, and this winter, and First Samuel 6 is a really interesting verse because that's where the Philistines send the Ark back to um, the people of Israel. And it gets sent to Beth Shemesh. And Mm. in Beth Shemesh, there's some people who decide they're going to open the ark. And Mm. um, yeah, 70 70 persons are struck down because they try to, they open the ark, try to look inside. And so there's a lot there about Mm. the city of Beth Shemesh. And some scholars believe that that was actually the dwelling place of that family the the one family that could handle the ark, the Koath mm. or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm not I'm not sure if it was Beth Shemesh or Kiriath Jerim, but one of those cities was the dwelling place of that family, and that's where the ark returned and was sent back. But yeah, pretty interesting stuff. So and actually, the ark shows up in the Book of Revelation too, which is really interesting. Yeah, it does. Um, I'm trying Isn't to it like that. up in heaven? Yeah, like John sees basically the curtains of the holy place part, and there's the ark. Almost as to mm. say, like the restoration of God's dwelling place with His people is coming about. Yeah. You know that God will do all of them forever, and the ark kind of represents that. So, yeah, interesting. A lot of people don't realize that. Yeah, when um, <clears throat> the first temple was built, you know, it had the ark of the covenant in it. But mm-hmm. in 586, when um, the Babylonians destroyed that temple and destroyed Jerusalem they took all the holy objects out of the temple and they made a list of all the things they brought of that temple, but uh, the Ark of the Covenant is not listed in it, which mm. leads people to speculate that maybe it was snuck out and maybe it's in Ethiopia or wherever. Yeah. But um, but it was not put back in to the temple that Solomon built and Herod later expanded upon. So the temple that Jesus would have frequented was devoid of the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. <laughs> there, it was just an empty Holy of Holies, I guess. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. That is super interesting. Hmm. We could do a whole episode called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Where is the Ark? Mm-hmm. That'd be yeah. a good one. Where's the Ark? Like theories and uh, church traditions, like what happened to the Ark, you know? That'd be a fun yeah, one. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, next question. Um, there is an awful lot of controversy, or if you're British, controversy. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> around worship music lately, <laughs> namely songs coming from Bethel Music, Hillsong Church, and Elevation Church. A lot of the controversy stems 
from, I'm just going to say it like Americans, the controversy stems from the theology in those churches and concerns that as consumers of the music, we are funding ministries and directing people to teachings that may not be 100% biblical. Side note, some of my favorite worship songs are coming out of these churches slash music labels, and I love singing many of them at my church, but I am really trying to look biblically at the controversy going on between brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, some of the lyrics are very scriptural, but I wouldn't look to the pastors of some of these churches for solid biblical wisdom. So we, we talked a little bit about this on our NAR episode several years ago, but I think people are still wrestling with it. Um, so I, I think an easy answer is like, if there's ever a song that your church is singing that promotes or encourages bad theology or something that's unbiblical, you just should sing it period. No matter who wrote it. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say hundred percent. If it's, yeah. if it's bad, if it's bad theology, don't sing it. <laughs> right. Um, but as far as getting into the territory of, maybe cutting out even theologically sound songs that were written by songwriters that might be associated with churches or groups that we disagree with. I think um, that might be where things get a bit more tricky uh, because you kind of have to start asking the question, like how far do you take this? Right. Mm -hmm. So kind of going back to what we talked about when we talked about you know, Calvinists versus Arminians and Catholics versus Protestants. Like, I think we have to make sure we know and understand and categorize the theological differences that we have between Christians because they're not all the same. And like, we just talked about the differences between Calvinism and Arminianism. Like that's not the same as Protestant and Catholic. Like those are two very different things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so some theological differences would be worth breaking fellowship over and not having any association with whatsoever. So for example, like if you were to come to my church and say, Hey man, I used to be Mormon and we used to sing this awesome song in the Mormon church. Well, yeah, I just don't think we're going to sing your Mormon hymn. Like just not happening. <laughs> right. Or we used to sing this hymn in the Jehovah's witness, um, you know, kingdom hall. Well, we're not doing that because you guys deny the divinity of Christ. Right. But other theological differences, they might be important or concerning, but they're not necessarily salvific and they wouldn't be worth completely breaking fellowship and having any association whatsoever with. So mm. when it comes to like Bethel Church, I would disagree with Bethel Church and their leadership on the role of the offices of prophet and apostle. I believe that the gifts of apostleship and prophecy are still in operation for today but I don't believe they hold the kind of authority within the new Testament church that those uh, at Bethel church would say they do. I disagree with Bill Johnson and Chris Follett and all those guys about all that stuff. I don't believe that the nature of divine healing works the way that they say that it works. We talked about this in the word of faith episode. I don't, I don't believe the word of faith theology. I think it's dangerous, right? So those disagreements would be very, very, very concerning and for that reason, I can never like worship at Bethel church, but would that necessi necessitate me calling those people unbelievers that are in the same camp as Mormons or Jehovah witnesses? Does that make sense? Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think about that so far? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a big topic. <laughs> I think, I think every, every church or congregation 
uh, needs to sit down with their eldership, the leaders and the pastors of the congregation need to make an authoritative decision on this. Are they going to make a, you know, just a blanket rule? We're not going to do any of their music because it promotes it promotes those churches and in in some of their bad theology. Or are we going to play their music but not really promote their bad theology? Yeah. Or are we going to embrace both? Um, and I think that that needs to be something done probably more on a local level. Right. Um, so it's more of a conviction. Um, it wouldn't be like a broad blanket statement, thus saith the Lord for everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. I, mean, I mean, there's people that would say, well, David was writing Psalms while living in, in sin, and those are now in the Bible, you know. And right. I, I see the point there. I think every church just needs, a, needs to make a authoritative decision on this and respect one another's differences when it right. comes because this isn't a very black and white kind of issue no no it's not and i think that's a good word like this is probably more of like what the leaders of a church or what a worship leader would say is mm-hmm. man this is how we feel like we're honoring the lord in our local assembly and if somebody mm-hmm. doesn't feel like they can honor the lord and sing a song in good conscience and they know that that's written by a songwriter that's from one of these groups, yeah. then man, by all means, don't sing it. Right. <laughs> if that's what's on your mind while you're singing I, it, don't sing it. I, I do know this for certain. If someone is in your church and they stop attending and they no they no longer attend because you don't play these people's songs, you probably don't want them sticking around to right. begin with. <laughs> and the converse is true. If yes. someone who is well invested in your church suddenly up and leaves because you played one of these songs, you might not want them well invested in the church. Because <laughs> you, you see what I'm saying? I do like, see what you're saying. Um, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. That's a bold word there, Pastor I, Gabe. But yes, I do Now, there, there are yeah. protocols. Like, yeah. obviously, if someone in my congregation has some serious concerns with us playing, um, what's one of Bethel's songs? I, I don't know. Um, Goodness of God. Spirit, lead me where the... Whatever. It's like, if someone... If we play that... <laughs> That's song. Every sure. other week. Yeah. Yeah. If we if we play that every <laughs> other week and they and they feel that that is condoning or... Uh, promoting. You know, embracing, promoting right. their theology, I, there are channels open for them to come and raise concerns about that. Sure. Yeah. But if they just up and leave and turn around and start trash-talking the church because you played spirit lead me where my faith is without borders. Like you probably did yourself a favor. Let's just be honest. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 No, I, I'm in agreement with you. I think like if, if we would say like, man, so our disagreements with Elevation Church or uh, Bethel Church or Hillsong Church, if those, like we would still say, man, those are Christians. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. As far as we can tell, we don't know them. We're not up close. We don't see the fruit of their life. But as far as we can tell, they're not, they're not preaching that Jesus was an angel or they're not preaching that you come to faith in Christ through, you know, false salvation. Like, man, we would have disagreements with them, but Mm -hmm. like it probably wouldn't be enough for us to just say like nothing that they have anything to do with, even if it's, you know, by association to the third and fourth level, like we will have anything to do with because anathema to us. Right. I, I would just say, man, I, I just don't know. I think that is a very, very, very slippery slope to get into. And that's just you painting a very small circle that says us four and no more in my little tribe. And, mm-hmm. and anybody else that's not doing it exactly like I'm doing it, they're not even saved. And I just say, anytime a church does that, that's when you get into cult-like territory. 
Yeah, and if you say you can only at this church play worship music that is written and composed by people that I agree with 100% of the time. <laughs> It'd be like three you songs. Will find yeah. yourself, you will find yourself only singing songs that you have composed. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and so like I was thinking about this. If you only... If you if you never sang hymns or worship songs of Christians who hold the theology you disagree with, you'd have to stop singing all of Charles Wesley's hymns. So that's Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, Oh Can It Be, Come That Long Expected Jesus, because uh, he and his brother John believed in sinless perfectionism and total sanctification where you can be so holy that you stop sinning, right? So hmm. scrub all those hymns out of your hymnal. Um, you'd probably have to stop singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God by Martin Luther, because he was violently anti-Semitic. So mm-hmm. his writings against the Jewish people are, are sometimes credited for the Nazi state version oh, of Lutheranism. Nice. Right. Uh, yeah. You'd probably have to stop singing It Is Well With My Soul by Horatio Spafford, because after he wrote that hymn, he started a cult and died under the delusion that he was the Messiah. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so like, I think in short, you got to be really careful with this. I like like Gabe said, mm-hmm. if you in your church you guys feel convicted, we don't need to do anything for Bethel music. Man, God bless you. Follow where you feel yeah. like the Lord's leading you in that. But if there's another church that doesn't feel that and and they're singing a song that has awesome theology and and nobody in the seats is asking, "Hey, who wrote this?" like cuz most people aren't. They're just saying, "Man, this is glorifying to the Lord Jesus and this helps me worship." Um I, I don't think this is something for you to be divisive and a jerk about. Yeah. And, and like, who? You know, Go ahead. <laughs> you know how we always like to, whenever the worship leader is about to start playing it as well with my soul, tell the story really quickly about yeah, yeah, how yeah. Horatio <laughs> lost his family in the shipwreck. And then he goes back out to about the place where he lost his family in the shipwreck. And he writes this beautiful song. Yeah. And then we play the song and it's like, we should do this thing where instead we say, hey, <laughs> this song was written by a man who started a cult and proclaimed to be Messiah <laughs> and died just just crazy lunatic out of his mind. Just that, you know what, crazy. When peace. It is yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just see the reaction, everybody. Like, yeah. No, don't do that. Don't no, do no, that. No, don't do don't that. Do yeah. That. Um so yeah, I, I think like there are a lot of discernment ministry types who are being very, very, very reckless and careless with heresy hunting when it comes to things like these. And I think that opens the door for us to become more and more and more critical and less and less gracious with other Christian mm-hmm. movements we may not be 100% in agreement with on everything. So um, I think as America gets decidedly post-Christian, we have to decide what are the majors of our faith and we can't become more tribal as our nation is becoming more post-Christian. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. Like we're going to have to be okay with showing charity to those we may not be in a hundred percent agreement on, on secondary issues and not call them non-believers if they actually like affirm the basics of the Christian faith. Even if we may disagree on other stuff, man, you're still, still believers. But yeah, so that's where I'm at with that. So <laughs> interesting topic, though. It is. It yeah. Is. Oh boy. <laughs> I gave you this next one because I thought it's hilarious. <laughs> wow! Wow! 
Uh, number five. Wow, thank you so much. <laughs> why? <laughs> why do modern day Gentiles still practice circumcision? Mm. That ought to keep the listeners engaged. LOL. <laughs> how do I know? How do I know you didn't just make up this question and just give it to me? Is like this? I will tell you the person who sent this in. He listens mm-hmm. faithfully. He knows who he okay. is. And if he, okay. as soon as he listens to it and he sends me a text laughing about this, I will screenshot it and send it to you. That'll be proof. Okay. Yes. All right. So listen, <clears throat> I say this thing when people ask this question about circumcision, especially. Wait, do you, do you get asked this a lot like, because you're, you're messianic, uh, yeah, synagogues? Yeah, I mean, you I say at least okay. tw- twice, twice a year, probably. Okay. Um, I always tell people, listen, read your Bible, study your Bible, pray about this topic and then don't worry about my privates and I won't worry about yours. Let's just have that agreement. Okay. Like let's just, if we all just like no one in this place should see each other's privates ever. Yeah. With the exception of married couples. Okay. So let's just, let's just all make this like agreement. Let's just all do this right now. And I think, I think Paul, I think Paul would be happy with this. I think he would too. Let's just, yeah, let's just all stop worrying about each other's privates. Yeah, like don't do that. And then we'll just pr- press on with how we how we feel convicted and whatever whatever we decide to do. Let's just let's just not worry about each other people's right stuff. Okay, right. But no, that doesn't work, right? But no. So that was the case in the first century. There was a group of Jews who believed that in order to have a place in the age to come, the Olam Haba that they had to be converted to, to become, to become that anybody who was Gentile had to be converted to become Jews in order to have a place in the age to come. That was the starting point. Um, that was the teaching of, in the, the, one of the main tenets of the great rabbi Shammai, who was, um, like a first century BC great rabbi, hmm. um, yeah. uh, who was, who was, who was like contemporaneous with ha- rabbi Hillel. Um, so Rabbi Shammai had that as a starting point for Gentiles that you had to be circumcised. So that that teaching continued on into and crept its way into the sect known as the Way, the Christian faith, um, which was which was predominantly a Jewish movement to begin with, but had a lot of Gentiles coming into it. So they they had this question in the first century: What do we do with the Gentiles? So one camp said, "Let's circumcise them, make them Jews, then they'll have a place in the age to come." The other sect, which is probably under the school of Hillel, which is what Paul was from, because his rabbi Gamliel was a was a student of Hillel. So <laughs> Paul was influenced by Hillel. It said, no, basically it's a more lenient Gentiles just have to stop doing some very egregious sins. And then as they learn and assimilate into uh you know righteous behaviors, they will have a place in the in the age to come. So Paul probably had that more lenient stance, but um, Gentiles still get circumcised for a couple different reasons. Like, um, it's kind of just, kind of just culturally, especially in, in, in the United States, at least it's just kind of something that's just kind of stuck around. Um, yeah. uh, it's something that, uh, yeah, like in, in many different Christian traditions and denominations, they'll say, instead of circumcision, we now do infant baptism. 
Like I know the hmm. Presbyterians are one of those, the Catholics are one of those. Yeah. Hey, I want to just interrupt still... for a second. You hear that, that, that it? Sure. in the background, if you're listening, yeah. My, yeah. my wife just came home from a small group. She's opening the door. That's just the alarm bell to our house. So if you're, oh, okay. yeah, that's not people's radios freaking out. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no worries. Sorry. Keep going. So, sorry. Uh, yeah. I forgot where was that. What were we talking about? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I threw you off. Um, <laughs> so, but it's funny cause like they'll still, they'll still baptize their babies, but they'll still mm-hmm. have them circumcised. So I think it's just kind of a traditional thing, like a cultural thing more than as a religious thing right now. But I think that's partly because it was a religious practice. Hmm. Um, so Paul says in first Corinthians seven, he says, um, let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised or, or, or a Jew, let's say, because that's synonymous with, be, with being a Jew. Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised or we could say Gentile? Let him not seek circumcision or, or we could say conversion over to becoming a Jew. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Hmm. Which why did Paul have to say it like that? Because <clears throat> circumcision is a commandment of God. So it's like, ah, oh, Paul, you're confusing me. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So here I would say, if you're a Gentile believer coming to me and you're, you know, a grown man, you come to me and you say, Hey, do I gotta be circumcised? I would say, absolutely not. Circumcision is of the heart. It's you know, it's you, you remain how you are. That's according to uh, the Apostle Paul. So that's that's what I would tell people. Um, keep the commandments of God. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So um, now let's talk non-biblical here about circumcision. Um, there are a lot of health benefits to being circumcised. Um, there's a fascinating study on uh, the NI, NIH.gov. It talks about... Um, that the transmission of HIV and the acquisition of HIV in men uh, reduced uh, 51 to 60% men who've been circumcised. Hmm. In addition to HIV, it talks about um, STDs. Um, acquiring genital herpes decreased by 28 to 34% men that were circumcised. Uh, the risk of developing genital ulceration by 47%. Um, Hmm. There's a lot of like uh, HPV decreased, yeah. Um, where there is circumcision, thirty-two to thirty-five percent. Um, cervical cancer decreases. Um, urinary tract infections decrease. There are there are empirically proven facts, yeah, uh, which say that that circumcision is healthier for a human being who is sexually active. So that's all I want to talk about <laughs> right now with circumcision. <laughs> That's um, good. You answered that question. So, so stunningly. The, the gentleman who asked this question, um, I promise you, I will not think about your privates if you don't think about <laughs> mine. Okay. Let's just leave it at that. Well done, sir. Well done. Thank so who I'm sweating. Yeah, uh, you're really sweating. You huh? are good. You're good. Um, yeah. So circumcision doesn't save you. Mm-hmm. Faith in Christ saves you. And those who would try to make circumcision a part of earning salvation. That's why we have the book of Galatians, right? Like, why mm-hmm. would you yeah. go back to that? You have faith in Christ. You right. have the gospel. Like, so yeah, Paul would probably say that same phrase to people in the church 
Because 1 Corinthians 7 essentially is, hey, stop worrying about if your neighbor is. And if you're not, then stop worrying about it. Like, if you're not, then you're not. Like, don't, it doesn't, like, commend you to God anymore. This is not a um, salvific spiritual thing anymore. So, yeah. Hmm. It's good. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. All right, last question. And we'll take it home. This is a fun one. Uh, this is from our friend Andrew. Andrew's a legacy listener. He's part of our Platinum Club. Mm. Mm. Uh, I, I did get a funny uh, email from Andrew one time. Andrew's been listening for several years. So, Andrew, we hear you. We see you. Shout out to Andrew. Uh, one time um, I went to preach at our Murfreesboro campus where Andrew attends church. And I was preaching there that weekend. And apparently he had been working on like a weekend project. And he had binged like seven beers and Bible episodes all weekend. Oh wow, wow! And so I'm he had so had yeah, I know that's so he had mine, your voice in his ear while he's like working around his house, and then he shows up to church, and there I am preaching. He has to listen to me again, and uh, he sent me an email. Thought it was funny, so sorry about that, Andrew. Mm, but that's funny. Anyway, all right. So this is what Andrew asked. It seems that some non-believers want to use the KJV's use of the word unicorn to denigrate the validity of scripture. It appears in a handful of Old Testament passages. Other translations use the word ox in its place. There's a second argument. The author may be referring to a certain breed of rhinoceros. So while this might be the least consequential question about the Bible, do you think those verses refer to oxen or rhinoceroses? <clears throat> I think that is a fascinating question. Thanks for sending in. Um, so you're correct. There would be, here's what I've, at least found there may be more numbers 23 verse 22 numbers 24 verse 8 Deuteronomy 33 17 Job 39 9 through 10 Psalm 22 10 Psalm 29 6 Isaiah 34 7 um, all of those verses speak of an animal called Raim uh, Gabe you're our resident Hebrew scholar so that would be the English uh, spelling is R-E- and there's like a little quotation mark, E-M. Yeah. So that'd be re yeah. or re How would you say that? Re-M. Re, yeah, re, re Okay. So the, the Hebrew word re essentially means beast with a horn. So re got translated in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as monokeros. And then in the Latin Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the old testament as unicornus so hmm. then the king james bible when it came to that word ram consulted the latin vulgate and took the word unicornus and, and unicornus in the latin vulgate was just basically trying to describe what ram is and it was just how to describe a beast with a horn and so they just translated ram as unicorn Interesting. Yeah. So skeptics of the, the Bible that would say, well, you know, these, the Bible's talking about this mythical creature that's like a, got a horse with a horn on its head and wings. Like they just believed in fantasy and mythology. Like, n- no, that's, that's not it at all. Um, all they were trying to do was describe this creature that was a beast with a horn. That's essentially what it is. So I think then the question becomes what, was Ray M referring to. And so 
Andrew is correct. There's actually some translations that would translate Re'em as a wild ox. Um, some people think that it was rhinoceros, and that was mentioned as well. But I found this, the Hebrew word to'apapha, to'apapha, that's Numbers 23-22. So Gabe, you want to look that up, and you can find that word in Hebrew, Numbers 23-22. Um, that refers to more than one horn. So it's likely the translators of the Septuagint would have used kind of creative license to infer a very mm. wild and powerful, but very recognizable animal for their versions. So um, here's the theory I thought was really interesting. Uh, some scholars believe the Rayim is referring to Aurochs and the Aurochs is an extinct uh, cattle, basically. So uh, this was like very common in Europe and very common in the Middle East, but they went extinct in the 1600s. So basically they're ancestors of domestic cattle. So, um, yeah, I mean, so Aurochs, I mean, we know Aurochs existed, obviously, because there's all sorts of evidence they existed. They only went extinct in the 1600s. So it could be an Auroch that was being uh, described. It could be uh, Uru's which were also large cattle, which roamed Europe in Asia in ancient times. And so there was a rabbi named Natan Slefkin that understood that the Rayim in the Bible would have been the Aurochs. And uh, also mm-hmm. sci-fi writer Isaac uh, Azimov, he thought that as well, which I'm like, well, that's interesting. He had an opinion about this. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's the guy that like wrote about artificial intelligence and robotics and stuff like that, but he, he weighed in on it. So... Um, yeah. Did you look that up? Numbers 23. Uh, I did, but I don't see that particular word in, in the Hebrew of that verse. What does that verse say? By the way, numbers 23, 22. God brings them. God brings them out of Egypt. Like, like the strength of a wild ox. He has the strength of a wild ox. What is that word in Hebrew? Strength of wild ox, wild ox in Hebrew. And that Stri- the wild ox is the Re'em. Oh, so it is Re'em. Okay. Yeah, now the strength. Oh, I see. I see what you're talking about. The strength is to'afa, uh, which is like the idea of like eminence. That's okay. that's translated in that in that particular verse as strength. Okay. Um, but it's like you know, like um, uh, it's it's translated in um. Numbers twenty four eight. He is he uh, he is for him like the to'afa. <coughs> Yeah. Um, it's like for him, like the horns of the wild ox. So it's like, like horn. also oh, okay. oh, Psalm so 90, horns, so Psalm 95, one. four. Yeah. yeah. Psalm 95, four uses to'afa to refer to the peaks of the mountains, the to'afa huh. okay. of the, of the mountains. So it's the idea of like a something pointy. Gotcha. So something tall and pointy. Yeah. So that to me does not sound like a rhinoceros. That probably sounds more like. What would be a ancestor of a domestic cattle, so an aurochs. Hmm. Like, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think there's a tremendous amount of uh, Canaanite imagery that employs wild oxen. And sometimes where you see Re'em show up in the Old Testament text, it would be like in a negative thing, like David comparing his enemies to that. 
And so mm-hmm. an auroch or a, a bull auroch would have represented several different uh, pagan deities, including Baal, Moloch, and the uh, Egyptian gods. So, and then again, we have the tale of the Israelites trying to make a golden cow. So there's that dynamic of it as well. And I'm not an ancient Semitic scholar, so I'm not, I'm no Dr. Michael Heiser. So I don't think I could speak authoritatively about that, but uh, yeah, I don't think Graham had anything to do with a unicorn or rhinoceros. Probably not. I think it's probably closer to a, like a a wild ox or a bull or an auroch. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah, but definitely not a checkmate if an atheist says, well, yeah, well, the Bible talks about having unicorns. What do you think about that? So de- definitely not a checkmate from atheists. So there you go. Although I don't know any atheists that talk like that. So <laughs> like, like Mr. Mackey from South Park. <laughs> yeah, and I, I would say too, this is probably worth another podcast episode. I don't know that I would use the King James Version to defend Ooh. my faith to Ooh. begin with. Um, King James Version has some serious shots uh, fired. Some serious things that I, I take issue with. Um, shots fired. Just because it's it's largely reliant on the Hebrew Masoretic text as a as a source text. I wonder if that, that's a that's a whole other yeah. topic though. I wonder if we could do an episode on like the King James only controversy like that's a really good book i just mm-hmm. i read that this past year uh, by james white uh basically like yeah. the denominations that say that that's the only legitimate bible yeah that'd be that'd be fascinating yeah too. and like why they think that and maybe why we would say yeah there's probably better translations than that one so yeah yeah hmm. Ooh. wow Contras- how do you say it in, Con- you controversy say it in, in british english Contra- controversy. controversy i think <laughs> If you're listening in the UK right now, you you want to murder me. Hey, so true story. I was I was riding into work today, and I turned on NPR uh, just because sometimes I I like to laugh at some of the ways that people talk, not at their content, Mm -hmm. just sometimes like people in NPR, people in NPR talk like this. Yes, and they uh, had a correspondent from the BBC, and I was listening and trying to emulate the the way that British English is pronounced. And I know we have listeners from the UK, so thank you for listening. If you're from the UK, um, I am so interested in uh, in wanting to sound British. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that would be so cool if you like went and visited the UK and you were an American and mm-hmm. you could fool someone who was genuine with a with a British accent and you didn't have it. You know what I mean? Because every American thinks they could do a British accent, but we can't. It's not authentic, but we we've seen Mary no. Poppins and we think we can, you know. Mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> does she? Does Julie Andrews have a British accent in real life? She does. Yeah, she's British. I think. Oh, does she? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, there's there's actors and actresses who who play parts either pretending to have British accents or American accents, or vice right, versa. Right. And they pull it off for the entire movie, and it's like, mm-hmm. how do they do that? You know. Yeah. 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 So um, I think of the guy that played Dr. House. He was also in Black Adder, uh, Hugh Laurie. His American accent as Dr. House was like perfect. And most Americans, yeah, when yeah. they saw it, because most Americans didn't know about Black Adder, the TV show, which was really, that's what he was famous for in the UK. We didn't know about that. And so then he came over here and started on the show House MD. 
and we all thought he was American because he had such a good American accent. And then he was on an award show and found out he was, alas, he was not. And mm-hmm. our minds were blown. So thank you to all our friends at the UK for Christian Bale. Yeah, Christian Bale. He's got like a Welsh accent. He's got an interesting one, but he he almost always plays an American. So it's crazy. We could do a whole episode on that. <laughs> yeah, no, probably yeah. not. Alrighty. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for sending in your questions. And if you have any more questions on any of these, any follow up questions on it, uh, shoot us an email: beers and Bible podcast at gmail dot com. Reach out to us via the Facebook. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. We will see you guys next time. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe, share, and as always, send us a question. If you've got one, to the email, beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.